0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to worship you uh, with you this morning. I'm Mark Ritchie, and I'm one of the elders here at Lakewood. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, my mouth is dry. <clears throat> uh, and to you who are live streaming, thank you for joining us. Uh, this morning, is just you are just as important as everyone else in this room. I just want you to know that. So, thank you for joining us over live stream. I know what you're thinking. <clears throat> you're thinking, "Who is this guy? He's not a pastor. I've never heard him speak before, except for the two-minute little prayers every so often." <clears throat> I'm Mark Ritchie, <clears throat> uh, and I'm here as one of your elders. And uh, I want you to know, then Dave addressed this a little bit, but we as elders believe it is so important for our pastors to have study breaks uh, every once in a while to keep them fresh, learning, growing in their ministry and preaching. So, <clears throat> with humble trepidation, I agreed to step in this morning and take one for the team. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, And as Dave also mentioned, haven't you enjoyed the summer series in the Psalms? Uh, In this world of disruption and deconstruction, it has been a balm to my soul. Kids, that means it's pretty cool and it really is healing, okay? Our Summer in the Psalms series not only shows the beauty and majesty of God, but also the grim reality of sin with a capital S, all of which can speak to our mind, our will, and emotions using different types of metaphors, similes, and parallelism. As a kid in school, I was terribly challenged with poetry, reading it, listening to it, speaking it. You know, why can't Shakespeare and the modern poets and rappers today just plainly say what they want to say, like Dr. Seuss, him I get. Uh, what, what, once I look at the pictures, <clears throat> I have a, a quiet and shy but very friendly 70-year-old granddaughter. Uh, she's from Alaska. They visited this summer with her family. Uh, when At the dinner table, Marianne and I were beginning to ask questions about your school year and what classes you liked and didn't like and things like that. And uh, she came alive. This is shy, very shy. She came alive when she started talking about her English teacher and her poetry class. It's like this, I love it. She gets up, she go gets her iPad she proceeds to read her favorite poem, and then she reads a poem that she's written. And, uh, and she goes, you know, poetry was really hard at first, uh, but now I love it. And I'm thinking, who is this girl? <laughs> I haven't seen this girl before. Uh, and her whole countenance literally lit up. And she even reads poetry like you're supposed to. I don't quite know what that means yet. But you know what? Uh, Here's the thing. I think us analytical, somber, right brain, serious Christians tend to live lopsided lives. Uh, We could use a little more poetry in our life. Why? Because good poetry, and biblical poetry in particular... Is in the Psalms, uh, if we give it a ch- an honest chance, has the ability to speak to our whole self. And I'm relearning to appreciate the language of Hebrew poetry. Okay, I have a question for you as we begin this morning. Where do you go when you have your wilderness moment? And I'm not talking about going camping and our romantic fascination with the rugged beauty of the wilderness. I'm talking about when you are dismayed, discouraged, depressed, and oh so desperate. Where does your head go to meet your deep need? No matter how old you are or how young you are, you have been through the wilderness of rejection, and loneliness, of loss, and the feeling that you're not quite good enough. No matter how good, safe, comfortable life is now, how technically with it you are, or how popular you are, or how good your standard of living is, you will find yourself in the wilderness and in desperate need. So, where do you go? Now, when left to myself, uh, I go somewhere that usually isn't very helpful, okay? Can we just be honest? While in the wilderness, we can completely ignore the relational reality of what is happening around us, sometimes we go to a place of moral superiority and prideful legalism, showing off that we're one up on everybody else, but really we're devoid of humility, grace, joy, and meaningful relationships. Other times we go to a frenetic pace of entertainment, escapism like Kirk talked about last week, and even addiction with the hopes of at least getting some false relief from our painful circumstances. When you are lost and in the proverbial wilderness, either of your own choosing or thrust upon you, okay, or some more combination of the both. And you can't see the forest through the trees. Where do you go and how do you get there? So I believe Psalm 63 begins to answer the where and how for us. So grab your copy of the scriptures, paper or digital, and start making your way to to Psalm uh, 63, the big idea I feel led to uh, share with you this morning or frame for you is this. When you are completely dejected, depleted, deleted, discounted, or just plain dry, this is the time to earnestly wake up your soul, with a vision of our powerful God whose love is better than life. Okay, so follow along as I read Psalms 63. Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands." But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Whoa. So there's a couple thoughts about what is the occasion of King David writing this psalm. <clears throat> Some scholars think that uh, uh, this psalm coincides with 1 Samuel 21 to 23, and uh, uh, where the young and popular David was on the run and fearing for his life from King Saul, who was having a hard time uh, with the fact that God is you know, changing the leadership structures In the people of Israel. And Saul was no longer top dog. But in my reading, it seems most biblical scholars see evidence that this psalm coincides with 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 17, when the older King David was on the run in the wilderness from his very own son, Absalom, who is deceptively disrupting and making a move. To take over the kingdom of Israel. This betrayal is an extension of Kirk's message last week family betrayal. No matter which context it is, David is on the run for his life deep in the wilderness. Okay, so you're thinking, Mark, where's the joy here? You know, all this negativity, pain, and suffering in the wilderness. You guys, but the Bible does not shy away from speaking of the ugliness of even its most ardent followers and their sin and their wayward wilderness experiences this is partly why the scriptures as written in the as the old and new testament is so profoundly credible what religious text would be so brutally honest about the faults of its followers and isn't it true that to the degree of how earnest we are in seeking God seems directly proportional to the pain and problems in our lives. Could it be that God allows these painful parts of our lives to get our attention with the hope of us giving him our attention? So I find it fascinating in verse one, where we read the word earnest, This word comes from a Hebrew word, which also has been translated early. I think if you have the King James Version, it says early. I think the idea is one of of one who is intentional, purposeful, and serious about something or someone and can't wait to get up and start first thing in the morning. My dear wife, my dear wife, uh, she's very earnest in the morning. She... Bolts out of bed, ready to pounce on the day's task. Me, not so much. Look at the first powerful stanza of this poetry about thirsting for God in a dry and weary land. And by the way, that just reminds me, I need a thirst. Oh, I'm so thirsty. If you're unfamiliar or have forgotten, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that David, when he says this, uh, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, in a dry and weary land, I think he's thinking about the events as recorded in Exodus 15. <clears throat> so uh, if you're unfamiliar or forgotten kind of some of that story, it kind of goes like this. Now after about 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the people of Israel are backed into a corner and their very lives are at stake. Then the miracle of of the wall of water and six million Israelites cross the sea on dry ground. After which, Pharaoh's army of charioteers give chase and they finally look up and they go up. Okay. and Moses and the people are completely undone with relief and what do they do? they sing a song I can't imagine 6 million people singing a song I'm, it must have been incredible Exodus 15 verse 2 says the Lord is my strength and my song This is the people of Israel are singing this and he has become my salvation this is my God And I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. But then after three days in the wilderness, three days in the wilderness, they are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and now they're thirsty. And they realize that they didn't bring enough water, okay? David says in Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and thirsty land. Just like the Israelites experienced in Exodus 15. Now, the Hebrew word translated as soul, according to a cool little video by the Bible Project, means our whole being. Also, at its Hebrew root, it literally means throat, throat, as in the physical gateway for food, water, air, everything we need to keep us alive. In Exodus 15:24, they asked, the people of Israel asked, What shall we drink? This is really uh, the root word of this. What shall we drink is the word soul. The word translated soul is a bit of a challenge for our postmodern ears because we culturally think of the word soul as something contained in the physical body. So like Greek philosophy, we like to compartmentalize ourselves into parts. So we think we have a soul, But we have to understand that in the Hebrew mind and David's mind, Jesus for that matter, because he was a Jew, they think that they are a soul. Not have a soul, but are a soul. Now this shouldn't surprise us too much because what do we say? We say, oh, there are so many souls on board this ocean going ship, right? So that's familiar. By using the word soul, David is saying just as I need I need food, water, and air to survive this wilderness. So, my soul, my whole being needs God. All right, so let's look at some hints from this psalm for how our souls can wake up and move toward God while we're in our wilderness. And let me say right up front, guys, I am sorry. These are not six easy steps that we can check off a list every once in a while. So I'm gonna put them in the form of questions. I may not answer these questions, but they're in the form of questions, okay? So when you and I are dysfunctional, denounced, dejected, and up against a wall in the wilderness, number one, look at verse two. And here's my question will we choose to focus on God's power and glory or our own power and glory? Secondly, from verse 3, can we say this morning that God's steadfast love is actually better than life itself? Really? Truth be told, wouldn't you agree that we really love the beautiful gifts that God gives us? Rather than God Himself, the giver of those gifts? And as a result, can we commit our mouths to choose to praise and bless Him as long as we live? Why is it so hard that praising God in the midst of wilderness, my wandering wilderness experience, doesn't even occur to me? It doesn't even, I don't even think about when I'm in the middle of it. Number three, verse, from verse five, while in our wilderness, we will joyfully choose to be, will we joyfully choose to be satisfied in God? Do we keep our eyes open to see and snack on the many daily graces of God? Or do we just gobble up what the world offers for a moment of relief and pleasure? fourthly look at verse 6 will you and i take time to remember and meditate about all the times god has been there for us and got us through our previous wilderness that wilderness that was keeping us up at night of our own and reminding of us of our own faithless and anxious thoughts you know, Exodus 15, and you should read it this afternoon. I think it's a, a great story. Truth it's truth in story form. Exodus 15 ends with this beautiful picture of the oasis that, God's, that God provides in the midst of the wilderness. In Elam, it says, as the people of Israel were finally, you know, on the, on the way and complaining, and God provides this place called Elam. And what does it say? There were 12 springs of water for the next leg of the journey. There were 70 palm trees uh, for shade from that oppressive heat. Fifthly, look at verse 7. Can you even admit that God is your help to the point of singing in the shadow of His wing? Jesus makes this profound and chilling lament of the people of Jerusalem toward the end of Matthew 23, using hens gathering her chicks as a metaphor for the protective refuge of God's presence with shade from the heat and warmth from the cold. And he concludes with, And you were not willing. This reminds me of that beautiful verse in Isaiah 30, 15, where the Lord himself says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Oh, God. Forgive me for my obstinate heart that keeps me away from you when I'm in the wilderness. Finally, number six from verse eight, will you and I cling and fuse ourselves to God, agree with him about our sinful junk and allow him to uphold us? You know, I can't answer these for you, but if we want to be faithful followers of Christ, especially during our wilderness, We must chew on these questions for ourselves and with others and be open to seeing when and where our faith is faltering and get out of the mud and wake up and move toward Jesus. Are you in the deep, dark wilderness right now? Is God's love for you better than life itself? Really? Is this love real? Is God real? Is my love for God real? Can you be honest about your doubts? I like one pastor's theory as to why post-high school young adults leave the church is that their doubts about God, if God is really their God, are not free enough to be expressed in a safe place. It's like these doubts are twisted so tightly together and grow bigger and bigger and bigger in a small dark closet in the church basement and they're afraid to talk about them. And then they find themselves embarrassingly falling down and crashing and burned and they run right out that front door to never set foot into the church that we have modeled for them. Surely, surely, Our faith in God is strong enough to allow our kids to breathe a little and be free to ask their doubt-filled questions. Or maybe we moms and dads and grandparents aren't as strong in our faith as we think we are. If you're a teenager in the room this morning, on behalf of all the adults in this room, I am sorry. We haven't been strong enough consistently to talk about your doubts, and our doubts. Uh, Is this psalm lovingly hitting you right between the eyes like it is me? I'll be honest with you. My faith has faltered, and I have experienced more continuous anxiety during these last three years than I care to admit. You've heard the proverb, trouble comes in three, right? In the small youth ministry, uh, youth mission that I serve with, it feels like I'm experiencing three continuous crises to the third power, all followed by more many crises. How can we tell if our Christian experience, we're just going through the motions? That we're just caught up in the world's fast moving current of one upmanship mindless activity and habit. We get up, we get dressed, we get our coffee, Starbucks, Stonehouse or Caribou. We go to school, we get bored, we go to work, we're overwhelmed, we go home, we get snarky with our spouse or fight with our kids or my parents or my friends on Snapchat, recover from the boredom of the day or the abuse maybe I even felt. Escape with Netflix, Hulu, Prime, Xbox, or worse, just so I feel something other than this isolating wilderness of fear and pain. Oh, and oh yeah, we get to church once or twice a month, so me and God are right. So me and God are good, right? Same thing next day. Rinse and repeat next week, next month, next year. Let's circle back to verse 1 and bring this to a close. There for sure comes a starting point in our life, uh, but also followed by many points along our life where we must choose God as our very own. David says, God, my God. Sure, the God of my parents, sure, but not just the God of my parents, my God. Now, fast forward to the, uh, to the time of Christ's death on the cross. The disciples are still in the shock of grief and depressed, feeling like they're in the wilderness like a sheep without a shepherd. All of a sudden, they hear that Jesus' body is not in the tomb. And then some of the ladies, uh, they say they've seen him. And as per usual, men aren't really listening, okay? Then Jesus actually appears before the disciples' eyes, and they are flabbergasted, to say the least, except for Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. You know, doubting Thomas, that guy, that guy who we are all more alike in Scripture than anybody else, says what? Well, I want proof till I see the nail prints in his hand and stick my bony finger uh, in his side, I will never believe. He sits in that for eight whole days. Jesus shows up again, this time with Thomas in the room. And Jesus turns his gaze on Thomas and says, Hey, dude, look here, look here, you know, look here. Okay, wait for it. Thomas responds to Jesus out of the depth of his soul, his whole being, my Lord and my God. Can you say like David, God, my God? Is Jesus personally your Lord and your God, or is he just your parents' God? or just your grandparents' God, or your spouse's God? Can you and I say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God? If not, why not? And I'd love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee, either at Stonehouse, Caribou, or Starbucks, and chat about that. Enter Psalm 63 and the poetry of the Psalms. Now, what what does it mean for you and me to thirst after God, when you are completely dejected, depleted, deleted, discounted, or just plain dry, that is the time to earnestly wake up your soul with a vision of our powerful God whose love is better than life. You see what I mean when I say much of scripture, and the Psalms in particular, are written in the style of Hebrew poetry with symbols and similes and metaphors. Why? So what is written in the scriptures engages not just our heads, but our hearts, our whole being. Like I say, I'm sensing a need for more poetry in my life. So as the worship team comes up to lead us as we sing poetry to the Lord, Allow me to close with a a short prayer. Oh God, our loving, all loving, and all powerful God, our heads understand the words that your love is better than life, but right now, while we are in our own wilderness, we stop, we turn toward you and confess our deep need for your Holy Spirit to now quench our thirst and bring your love and comfort deeply to each of our souls. I pray this in the name of the strong, the strong name of Jesus, the lover of our souls. Amen.